Good evening, and welcome to Ideas. I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is part two of Justice as Sanctuary, a three-part series about the work of Dutch criminologist Herman Bianchi. It is prepared and presented by David Cayley. In the year 927, King Athelstan, the Anglo-Saxon ruler of England, granted to the Minster of Beverley in Yorkshire the privilege of sanctuary. The Minster was a monastery church, and the King's proclamation meant that within the vicinity of the monastery, including the town of Beverley, anyone fleeing vengeance would be safe from arrest or seizure. Several signposts outside the town indicated the distance a fugitive needed to travel to reach the sanctuary. Another milestone marked his arrival. Records from the 15th century, during the tumultuous period of the Wars of the Roses, show about 200 persons a year finding sanctuary in Beverly, most because of manslaughter. Refugees could stay in Beverly for one month, so long as they were willing to try to settle their differences with whomever was after them. During this period, they were considered guests and sat at table with the canons of the minster. If no settlement was reached by the end of this month, they were allowed a second month's stay, but then had to take their meals in the kitchen. If negotiations were still unsuccessful, fugitives were required during this third month's residence to begin working for their keep. And finally, if an agreement still remained out of reach, they were either put on a boat for the continent, granted safe conduct to some other refuge, or occasionally permitted to remain at the Minster as contributing members of the community. The right of sanctuary existed wherever people believed divine mercy to be an element of justice. The temples of the ancient world sheltered fugitives. The law of Moses provided for what the King James Bible calls cities of refuge for the manslayer, allowing asylum to all but the premeditated murderer. In medieval Europe, every church was a sanctuary. Then, in the period between 1500 and 1800, this right was gradually eliminated. Herman Bianchi, whose ideas are my subject tonight, would like to see it revived. In his book, Justice as Sanctuary, he argues that sanctuary was the key to a way of doing justice that put redress before retribution. From the safety of a sanctuary, an offender could try to find a way to make good the harm he had done. With the modern system of mandatory punishments, an offender became a burden to the state whose sole duty was to suffer. Herman Bianchi is a Dutch poet, historian, and lawyer. Until his retirement in 1989, he was professor of criminology at the Free University of Amsterdam, where he also served as dean of the law school. In many books and throughout a long career as a teacher, Bianchi has spoken against understanding justice as punishment. Imprisonment, he says, is cruel, stigmatizing, and often counterproductive. It should be used only where reconciliation and redress have manifestly failed. Bianchi supports his argument with both historical and anthropological evidence, showing that in pre-modern Europe and in many non-European societies before colonialism, reconciliation and redress were the common ways of addressing criminal conflicts. Tonight's program is about those old ways. 
about how they were supplanted by the modern philosophy of criminal justice and about how retrieving them might inspire contemporary efforts at reform. The interview from which the series is drawn was recorded during a visit I made to Herman Bianchi in the Netherlands in May of 1997. We sat in the living room of his old farmhouse in the northern province of Friesland, and he began this segment of our discussion by talking about punishment in the ancient world. The common way of thinking is that there has always been punishment. Punishment is the normal reaction to crime. But now everything depends on what you understand by punishment. Because of my literary and linguistic interests, my first question was, where does the term punishment come from? A term that goes back to Latin, punire in Latin, which you find in French, punir, and from French it went into English. The word punishment did not exist in Anglo-Saxon. But then I discovered that the word punir, punire in Latin, goes back to Greek. It comes from the Greek word poine. That's interesting, because poine is no punishment. Poine is a sum you pay because of damage you've done. That's poine. The Greeks did not have criminal courts, neither did the Romans. They didn't have it. They had no public prosecution. The Greeks didn't have it. And you can say, well, but the Greeks and uh, the Romans have sentenced people, haven't they? Said, yes, take for instance Socrates was sentenced, but it was political. He had not committed a crime. There was no prison in Rome. Well, people said, but the Marmitorian prison, where, where Vercingetorix was imprisoned by Julius Caesar, it was political. He was an enemy. Yeah, but they punished, they flogged people. I said, they are slaves. But slaves had no rights. But the Roman citizens could not be flogged, impossible. When the Apostle St. Paul was on his missionary travels, he preached somewhere in a town in Asia Minor, which is today Turkey. And then he was uh, uh, placed in custody. And then he said to the jailer, I'm a Roman citizen. The man got terrified because it was not allowed to imprison Roman citizens. They had no prisons. They had no punitive law. What they had was indemnifications and restoration, restorative justice, that's what they had. Only they used punishment for political reasons, and then they were extremely cruel. Throwing people to the lions, but those poor Christians had not committed crimes, that was political. And then they were very cruel. They threw people from the rocks, they threw them to the lions, whatever. If a Roman citizen uh, stole the horse of another Roman citizen, he could go to a praetor and ask for indemnification or that the stolen horse be given back. But the thief of the, the horse could not be thrown in the prison, could not be sentenced, it was impossible, when he was a Roman citizen. So uh, what we have done, we have accepted the Roman slave law in our punitive system. It's slave law, what we are using. And until about the year 1200, there is no punitive criminal law in Europe, not really. 
the assumption that one makes then is that there was a, a widespread practice of, of vengeance, of disorganized retaliation. Not true. Of course, there was feud, but it happened so little that it's mentioned in literature. It was possible. If you kill my brother, then I was allowed to kill you or your brother. But then you had a good cause to kill another brother of mine, to kill me. Within one or two years, it would be a civil war. It would extend itself. People were very scared for that. And so they said, all right, you killed my brother, I pay you uh, a, a thousand oxen. That was done. Now, feud was hailed in literature. So if you look at old Germanic, for instance, Icelandic hero stories, it's always about vengeance and feud. Yeah, it was the most interesting thing to talk about. It was not interesting to talk about negotiations between uh, two people and uh, trying to solve the problem by paying 500 oxen or, or horses or whatever. There was not the bravery of and hero and hero worship. You know, that, so that's why you find a lot of tales about feud in the Middle Ages. But it was rare. Another thing is there was the law of asylum in churches. And before the churches, the temples in Egypt and the temples in Rome and Greece were famous places of asylum. And in the Bible too, there were uh, towns of asylum in, in old Israel, in the laws of Moses. So if you kill my brother and I got very angry, I would try to kill you or, or get hold of you, you know? And then you would fly to a church or a temple. And then the church authority or the temple authority or whatever, the priests would be an intermediary, you know, and try to settle the whole thing by negotiations until a uh, solution was found and then the thing was done. That's criminal law of the early Middle Ages. So it was all private prosecution, private prosecution, not public. Public prosecution today is taken for granted and assumed to be synonymous with justice. But it did not appear in Europe before the end of the 12th century and then only sporadically. At Rome, as Bianchi has noted, criminal injuries inflicted by citizens were compensated rather than punished. Amongst the Germanic peoples of northern Europe, conflicts were addressed in a local gathering called a moot. This word moot has come down to us with the sense of something debatable, perhaps even undecidable, a moot point. But it was once an assembly of household elders, who composed a community defined by kinship and oaths of mutual service and protection. Violation of the peace of a household could lead to blood feud, but because of the danger of escalation to which Bianchi has already pointed, negotiations to forestall feuds were far more common. The first written law codes set out schedules of compensation in what seems to a modern sensibility almost macabre detail. In the law code of the first Christian king in England, Ethelbert of Kent, the four front teeth are rated at six shillings, the next four at four, and the back teeth at one. Amongst possible injuries to the ear are distinguished piercing, amputation, laceration, and loss of hearing. Death also had its price, which varied by class. In the edict of the Lombard king Rothari, 
the death of a free man demands compensation of 1,200 shillings, but of a household servant, only 50. In his masterful study of the origins of the modern Western legal tradition, law and revolution, historian Harold Berman has summarized this old European legal order. The basic law of the peoples of Europe before the 10th century, Berman writes, was not a body of rules imposed from on high, but was rather an integral part of the common consciousness, the common conscience of the community. The people themselves, in their public assemblies, legislated and judged. Law, he continues, was not a matter of determining guilt and fixing judgment, not an instrument to separate people from one another on the basis of a set of principles, but rather a matter of holding people together, a matter of reconciliation. It was conceived primarily as a mediating process, a mode of communication, rather than primarily as a process of rule-making and decision-making. According to Berman, legal orders of this kind were embedded in communal life. Legal rules existed, but they could not always be clearly distinguished from religious or moral injunctions. After the peoples of Europe were converted to Christianity, church law was added to this existing folk law. The concepts of crime and sin overlapped. Beginning in the 6th century, abbots of monasteries compiled collections of rules called penitentials, which assigned penances for various sins. These supplemented secular remedies, but did not replace them. Whoever violates right laws of God or man, says the law code of Ethelred, an Anglo-Saxon king, let him expiate zealously, as well through divine penance as through worldly correction. A common penance for serious offenses was pilgrimage, and a common destination, Herman Bianchi says, was Santiago de Compostela in northwestern Spain, where the Apostle James was believed to be buried. There was not yet a punitive criminal law system. And what did people do when there had been a homicide? Because you, even if the criminal is very repentant, he can't give life back to the killed person. When he has injured the person, he can try to help him to overcome the injury. But when he's dead, he's dead. And then very often, the criminal himself offered to do penitence and go to, for instance, to Santiago de Compostela. And modern research, some Spanish historians in recent years have discovered that the majority, the majority of the pilgrims go to Santiago de Compostela were criminals after a homicide. They came from all over Europe. That's why they went so far. Because if you wanted to do penitence for a homicide, you had to offer really something. And a trip, walking, from, from London or, or Holland or uh, Germany to Santiago de Compostela, that, that took you six, seven months. It was very dangerous. There were rogues and criminals on the way. There were wolves and bears still in those days in Europe. And it was very dangerous. You could suffer famine, no food, or they would rob you. If you took money with you, you know, for food on the way, it could be robbed from you. And so it was very, very dangerous. Because of these dangers, pilgrims during the Middle Ages often sought safety in numbers. 
In many of the older cities of northern Europe, the southern gates where they gathered to begin their journey still bear the name of St. James. Those who reached Santiago were given a shell, which they could take home as a sign that they had successfully completed their pilgrimage and thereby showed their penitence. Penance and the duty of compensation together comprise the criminal law. Getting back into the right relationship with God and neighbor was more important than satisfying the letter of law. The right of sanctuary was another aspect of this way of conceiving justice. God, as flesh and blood, is always present in the church, you know, because of the Eucharist and the transubstantiation. So, in the place where God is present, you cannot, in the presence of God himself, you cannot commit criminal justice. It's impossible because it would be too cruel. God would not allow that. Every church, in principle, had the right of sanctuary. Every church. Also in England. Although sometimes a particular king bestowed a particular right of sanctuary on a particular church or the precinct of the church, which was usually a town. So you had certain small towns, for instance, the town of Beverly, near York, in Yorkshire, in England, Beverly, which was a sanctuary town. The law of sanctuary began to be eroded during the 16th century. The first crack appeared when some Protestants put forward a new conception of the church as just a meeting place rather than a sacred space in which God has a special presence. Powerful monarchs like Henry VIII in England and Francois I in France tried to eliminate the right of asylum as a relic of Roman power and an unwanted hiatus in their authority. But in some places, the right persisted. In Hermann Bianchi's Netherlands, for example, sanctuary towns were able to retain their privileges because the central authority was too weak to challenge them. In the time of the Dutch Republic, there was no central power. So if a town had a sanctuary right and wanted to continue, there was no power to prevent them from doing so, you see? The provinces and the towns in the Netherlands were almost sovereign. And so very often they made money out of it because then a person, yes, because a person who fled to a sanctuary town and was afraid that if he would leave the town, he would uh, st could still be arrested, you know. And so uh, the best thing, the best thing was to become a citizen in that town, you know, because then he was more protected. And then they asked money to become a citizen of the town to get citizen rights, and then he paid. So they made money out of that. The Netherlands, Bianchi says, once had six sanctuary towns. The Dutch Calvinists, like the English Puritans, identified themselves as a new Israel, and so they followed the law of Moses, which provided that there should be six sanctuary towns in old Israel, three on each side of the River Jordan. This identification waned with the Enlightenment, and the final two sanctuary towns were eliminated at the end of the 18th century. One town in Denmark retained its sanctuary privileges until 1827, Frederizia, as it was called, had been created in the 17th century. The king of Denmark wanted a strong settlement town 
stronghold in the south of Denmark against uh, the developing power of Prussia. It was King Frederick. So he built a town, he had a town built and gave it his own name, Fredericia. The town still exists in the south of Denmark. But there were no inhabitants. <laughs> so he gave the town sanctuary rights for Roman Catholics and Calvinists, because Denmark was Lutheran, and criminals. And he used the laws of Moses for that. He said, all criminals are welcome and get sanctuary rights in order to negotiate about uh, the circumstances, etc. Only uh, premeditated murder is not allowed, that you find also in, uh, in the law of Moses. So you just apply the law of Moses. And until 1800, the laws of Moses were considered uh, legal in most European countries. It was the law of God. The law of God is better than any human law. So uh, you could always uh, point to the law of Moses. The existence of sanctuaries promoted negotiated settlement of criminal conflicts. They prevented vengeance, but made the offender a captive so long as he could not settle the case against him. Where settlement was impossible, sanctuary towns provided a living space for offenders who took up citizenship there. How this worked is illustrated by a case Bianchi likes to relate from the 17th century. Around 1660, there was a very important family in the Netherlands by the name of Heinsius. They had outstanding posts in the state. They were either a minister for the state general, one of them was uh, a member of the Supreme Court, and one of them was an ambassador in Moscow, an ambassador in Stockholm, Sweden, etc. So very important diplomatic posts. But he had a son, he had several sons, but one of his sons was a bad boy. He was drinking, having wrong friends, and one day he was drunk, and with a friend he was talking through the streets of The Hague, and he got a quarrel with a butcher servant, a young butcher, and he killed him with his sword. Now he was a member of the Heinzius family, and uh, the, the killed person was just a butcher, but still killing is killing, also in those days. So he fled, he left the country, he went to Antwerp. His case uh, was in trial before the court. He wrote to the court and said, I'm willing to pay, say, thousands gold coins to the family of the victim. The court was willing to do that, it was possible in those days. But the father said, no. I don't want to see that boy anymore who's going to give me troubles again and again and again. He said through the court, no, don't accept him. So he was banished for life out of the province of Holland. Young Hensius emigrated to Rome and attached himself to the exiled Queen Christina of Sweden, whom he knew as a result of his father's having served as the Dutch ambassador to her court. She had been forced to abdicate as a result of her conversion to Roman Catholicism, Sweden being a Protestant country, which is why she was in Rome. Hensius became her physician on the strength of a medical diploma which he had essentially purchased, but she was apparently content with his ministrations. When she died ten years later, he sought to return to the Netherlands. 
he went to a sanctuary town. There were two sanctuary towns in Holland in those days. And if you were there, you were protected by the mayor of the town. You could not be prosecuted by The Hague or any court outside. From the city of Kulemburg, where he stayed, that's near Utrecht, still there the city, he wrote to the court in The Hague, can't the, the banishment be lifted, so I can back to the province of Holland. Utrecht is outside Holland, you see. It's, uh, so, but his father was still alive, unluckily, so um, the father said, no, I don't want to see that boy here again. And then he stayed for the rest of his life in uh, Culemburg, where he died. Uh, he had a great practice. He specialized in the treatment of syphilis. And now you see that he was in that sanctuary town, could not be prosecuted. Herman Bianchi's study of the control of crime in old Europe and classical Rome began from his desire to gain some perspective on the contemporary image of justice as punishment. The same desire led him to look into the law ways of non-European peoples. There he made essentially the same discovery as he had amongst the peoples of Europe before the rise of modern criminal law. Until the time of Western colonial expansion, law amongst most non-European peoples was not separated from other social considerations. Law and religion overlapped, and the need to hold people together limited the isolation and punishment of offenders. One of Bianchi's informants was an old man of the Seneca nation whom he met on a visit to the United States. He said, are you a Christian? I said, yeah, I was baptized, but... Uh it's a moral question he asked me. He said, well, I was, but I've returned to the religion of my ancestors. But do you know the Bible? I said, yes. He said, uh, 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 very often the Bible is wrongly translated because it's not said a sinner you should forgive. It's the words used there is just criminal in Hebrew. I said, yes, I know. Now, the law in, among the Hebrews, he said, was that if someone has committed a crime against, crime against you, you should invite him to redress and restore the damage he has done. And you should invite him seven times. And Jesus said, not seven times, but seventy times, seven times. He said, now, that is the Indian idea of law is this. If someone commits a crime against you, you have to invite him ten times to give restoration, and to redress the harm he has done. If he refuses ten times, then he's thrown out. I said, yes, I fully agree with you. What we do is, instead of offering to a criminal the possibility to restore the evil, the harm he has done, we throw him out immediately. In the, the, the Germanic tribes in the early Middle Ages had the werewolves. Werewolves existed. You know what werewolves were? were that were people who had refused, they were criminals who had refused to offer restoration or redress. 
and then they were thrown out of the community and they had to live in the forest. And because they could no longer cut their hairs, they looked like wolves. You know? <laughs> and then people had stories about, and they would, would in, the, in the middle of the night, they would come to a farm and steal a chicken, you know, to, for food. And they were, they were usually criminals, thrown, thrown out. And what we, uh, I agreed with that uh, chief, the Indians, he said the word chief is a wrong translation. I said, yes, I know that as well. We have no chiefs, he said. We never had chiefs. But the f foolish Europeans thought, where is your chief? Where is your king? Or where is your baron? That, because they were used to have a chief or a baron. And so they wanted us to have one as well. But we never had one. The Indian word for chief means peacemaker. I said, well, we agree for 100%. <laughs> with you, I find wisdom. The justice of the Seneca, as this man represented it, attempted to reconcile rather than estrange offenders. The threat of banishment gave the demand for restitution real bite, but was actually used only as a last resort. Bianchi found the same emphasis on reconciliation in Indonesia, a former Dutch colony. The Dutch introduced European Dutch law into Indonesia when it was still a Dutch colony. Although very often they adapted the Dutch ideas of law to the Indonesian adats. Adat is the Indonesian word for law. But adat is not legislation. Adat is the feeling of justice. That's adat. Now what has happened? They never had prisons. The Dutch introduced prisons because they were used well. You send criminals to prisons, don't you? So uh, they, they build prisons in Indonesia for the criminal. But what happens when a man has been in prison for two or three years, still today, when he comes back into his community, it's a big feast. They put tables on the street and they make lo a lovely meal. You are the, the prodigal son. You have done the duty of penitence and now you're back. You're again with us. I once gave an, uh, a lecture on that in Germany, I remember, and there were several young judges there. And they said, exactly, that's now what we want. You know, what we should do, we can make our system just if the criminal who has served his sentence is called back to the court and then he is purified of all blame and would say, now you're one of us again, you know. But we don't do that. We put the person in prison, but the, the, the sentence continues afterwards, you know. For the rest of his life, he is an, uh, a lost man. And, and now the Indonesians did not understand imprisonment, and, but they're all right, let's try to diminish the consequences of imprisonment by receiving the man back into his community, say, you are our brother again, we love you again, you know. That's something beautiful, that's a dot. The Western concept of legal justice, of justice, of is so bloodily unjust and awful. The origins of this Western, and now worldwide, conception of justice, Bianchi believes, are to be found in the Middle Ages. The key change for him was the appearance of public prosecution. At Rome, in an earlier era, an official called a praetor had been elected each year to hear complaints from the citizens. He decided what rules of law applied in the disputes brought before him and enforced settlements, but he had no power to initiate cases or punish Roman citizens. 
in Europe during the first millennium, overlapping bodies of folk law and penitential church law established a framework for settling criminal conflicts. Only towards the end of the 12th century were there stirrings of a system in which a public authority demanded satisfaction for private injuries. The first attempts to introduce public prosecution, so to say that a representative of a king or any high authority could prosecute a crime even if the victim did not bring in complaint. It was no plaintiff. Before, no authority could do anything if there were no plaintiff. Now, Henry II, the legislator in uh, the man of Thomas Becket, you know, in, in England, and a count in Flanders, Philip of Elsass. Now, there was a lot of contact between England and Flanders, and I'm speaking about 1180. And so they knew of one another, and they introduced the first legislation of public prosecution. That's the first sign of criminal justice in the modern sense. It took another 300 years to develop. Around 1500 it was there. And then uh, the authorities would prosecute wherever they liked, using it for political reasons and for social reasons and whatever. And they were doing it so in the time of um, Henry VII in England, the father of Henry VIII. Punitive criminal justice was developing so rapidly that Thomas More said, what are we doing? Eh? Shouldn't we rather bring people, thieves, to a workhouse than hang them and flog them all the time? That was Thomas More's in his utopia. So he, being an intelligent man, very gifted man, he was aware of what was going wrong. We're going too far. Huh? We should not cruelly punish everything, everyone is doing any wrong. It's crazy. So in 1500, it had already developed very much, but it started in 1180. But how can something new appear? Where, where does it come from? I have two theories. Why did criminal justice develop in Western Europe? Is there any other part of the world where it developed? Yes, I found another part of the world where it developed, China. China also had public prosecution already 2,000 years ago. Why? Because there was a modern state. In order to have public prosecution, you need to have a public prosecutor. China was a highly developed state. It was perhaps the first modern state of the world, China. And a huge empire with taxes, a good taxation system, authorities who had money to pay civil servants. They even had famous Mandarin exams in China. They were famous. They had criminal law, punitive criminal law. You need civil servants in order to have a criminal law. The Romans didn't have civil servants. The Greeks didn't have them. They didn't have them in the early Middle Ages. Where from? They hardly had an... Uh, a money economy. So, yes, Henry II was the first one who appointed the man to prosecute publicly. But as I said, the development was very, very slow. They were helped by the Inquisition. The Inquisition was also an organized attempt to influence society. And they introduced torture. 
torture was forbidden in Roman law unless on slaves. You could not torture a Roman citizen. That was impossible. And so slave law, which was introduced because the Inquisition allowed torture. And the idea of torture, which was unheard of in the earlier Middle Ages, came to be when, when public prosecutors, the first criminals they prosecuted were heretics. Not thieves, they weren't killers, but heretics, witches. The Inquisition became an institution of the Roman Church during the 13th century. Its purpose was to discover and prosecute heresy. Inquisitors had wide powers to deploy police, notaries, and other assistants, and were able, like modern prosecutors, to start an action without a complaint. The change in the church which the Inquisition expressed had begun at the end of the 11th century with the so-called Papal Revolution. During the first millennium, and here again I'm quoting historian Harold Berman, there was as yet no separate, corporate, organized Roman Catholic Church in the West, no unified legal entity. Instead, Berman says, there was an invisible spiritual community of dispersed local dioceses, churches, and monasteries, all subject to secular authority. This began to change in the year 1075, when Pope Gregory VII initiated what many medieval historians have recognized as the first Western Revolution, the attempt to withdraw the Church from the world and establish it as a separate corporate entity exerting spiritual authority over the world. The Pope alone is the one whose feet are to be kissed by all princes, Gregory declared. The Church, as he pictured it, was to be a perfect society, called to reform and perfect the world. A crucial element in the papal revolution was the Church's attempt to systematize its laws and create the bureaucracy to execute them. The Church would henceforward be ruled by law, and law understood in a new way as a body of independent principles standing apart from custom or community. Thomas Aquinas expressed this new conception when he defined crime not as a concrete injury, but as a defiance of the law itself. And because the injury was to the law itself, he said, only punishment could repair the damage. Law now stood above society as its absolute and unequivocal ruler. According to St. Anselm, not even God can set aside his own laws. It's for this reason, Anselm says, that Christ had to pay by his crucifixion the price of Adam and Eve's disobedience. The first German law book, the Saxonspiegel, published around 1220, summed up this new attitude in a formula. God is himself law. The Inquisition expressed the terrible power of this new confidence in law. A legal institution was created to regulate the relationship between God and his people. What heresy was to the church, Bianchi says, crime eventually became to the state and its rulers. Crime was no longer viewed as a conflict demanding remediation and redress, but as a social heresy. The organization of the Inquisition, which with torture and prosecution, etc., gave an, an example to the worldly authority to develop something like that, and then against crime. The church did not tell them to do so, but they had an example. And that's why 
criminal law developed is torture. Torture in Holland continued until the 18th century, and so in France and Italy and Germany, everywhere. The, the, the English often say there was never torture in England. That's not true. Under Henry VIII and Elizabeth and Henry VII, there was a lot of torture in England as well. It was only after, after 1600 that it gradually disappeared, torture, for uh, criminal reasons. Why did the Inquisition torture the heretics? And why did the worldly authority later on torture the criminals? There was some logic behind that. They believe that the heretic is committing a grave sin before the Lord. A grave, grave sin. And if he did not confess, he would burn in hell into eternity. You could not sentence a person without confession, without pleading guilty. It was impossible. And so they helped him to confess by torture. And if he had confessed and he was burned alive, he went right into heaven. That was mercy. Herman Bianchi offers two main explanations for the violently repressive character of the criminal justice system that emerged in Europe after 1500. The first is his view of Western legal science as a secular theology in which crime is seen as a social heresy. The second is his idea that public prosecution and punishment developed because the state, following the church's lead, became able to organize and finance the necessary bureaucratic machinery. However, this capacity, he says, remained quite limited up until the end of the 18th century. Hangings and public floggings, as Thomas More remarked, were already common in the England of Henry VIII, but a comprehensive system of criminal justice was still well beyond the state's means. This is evident, Bianchi says, from the records of Amsterdam's main prison during the 17th century. The prison wardens were not paid. They had to live from the prison. Today we would call that corruption. They didn't call it corruption in those days. They needed to live from the prisoners. So in the 17th century, Amsterdam was already a city of 300,000 inhabitants, but the, the city prison, very often there were no more than 20 or 30 prisoners. That's very few for a city of 300,000. But um, if the prisoner could not pay, then the jailer would let him go, let him escape, because he didn't pay. But a son of a wealthy person, the father would pay to give him good food every day, you know? That was cheaper than paying the damage the son did, you know? Because parents in those days, a wonderful principle, were responsible for the acts of their children. So if your son was a hooligan, <laughs> the father had to pay. <laughs> so there were very few hooligans, I can tell you. Today, the parents are not responsible for the acts of the children as soon as they're older than 16 or 18 years. The state was still very poor in the 17th century. The taxes that were levied that were used for the military, or if there was a king for the royal household. That was all, military and royal household. For all the rest, there was no money, there were no civil servants, very few, very, very few. Certainly not jailers. That's why they had to work. It was a workhouse in Amsterdam. They had to raid wood, you know, red wood from Brazil to make uh, red paint. But it didn't work economically. So the city of Amsterdam had to add money to that prison. They said, well, are they crazy? 
criminals in there, we have to pay for it. No, never ever. So, it was a big prison. There could certainly be 200 people in, but usually there were only 12, 15. And when did it change in Amsterdam? Well, it's the new government of the Batavian Republic and the French Revolution, 1790. The modern prison came into being with the modern states. Many explanations have been advanced for the birth of the modern prison around the beginning of the 19th century. Utilitarian philosophy, distaste for corporal punishment, the Quaker conception of the prison as a penitentiary, and the application of industrial-style discipline to offenders. Bianchi offers a very practical reason, money and the civil service it could buy. Now the last ragged vestiges of sanctuary right and private settlement could be swept away in favor of a uniform system of criminal justice. The Enlightenment had produced a paradox. It had established the rights of man and then withdrawn them from those successfully prosecuted for crime. With the achievement of the full modern system of public prosecution, the offender, in Bianchi's view, had been denied any right to act on his own behalf. Modern criminal justice systems, he writes in Justice's Sanctuary, behave like the inscrutable god of Calvinist theology. Whatever offenders may offer as good works, he goes on, whether they be remorseful, repentant, or willing to do their utmost to repair the harm they have caused, they can never contribute to their own social salvation. On the contrary, once found guilty, they are lost, and in a shameful way. Imprisonment, Bianchi says, leaves a permanent stain. Herman Bianchi's objection to a system of criminal justice based entirely on prosecution and punishment is the way it works against the possibility of a criminal conflict ending in healing or reconciliation. Such a solution, he admits, is not always possible. But where it is, he does not see why the state should subvert it by insisting on punishment. The difficulty is illustrated by a case in which he was involved a number of years ago in Amsterdam. There were two boys in Amsterdam, boys of two brothers of 18 and 19 years old, or 17 and 18. And they um, upholded the cab driver, trying to get his money. The man defended himself, and then they hit him with their boots into his loins, to the effect that the man ended up in a wheelchair. That was a case before the court in Amsterdam. And then a lawyer, a an, an, uh, defender, who had been a student of mine, gave me a phone call and said, can't you come in court? Then I summon you as a witness to explain to the court a little bit of your ideas. And, you know, it's a fact that all these silly cartoons, like Tom and Jerry, that I watched my children of three or four years old, are very stupid because the clever mouse and the stupid cat, and the cat throws a bomb to the mouse. The mouse catches it, the bomb throws it back. 
Then the cat explodes. <laughs> but one minute later, he is back again in shape and goes after the mouse. So lots of stupid children think that if you throw a bomb at someone or if you treat him with your boots in his line, just like those people of the A-team, you know, the car explodes and it gets out, put this about the explosion, then it go off. Uh, that stupid movie is on television. So stupid boys is now too intelligent. He, they thought that if, they, if you hit a man with your boots in his loin, that you just get up. No, it's not true. He ends up in a wheelchair. So those boys were very stupid. But they were in prison, in jail, awaiting their, uh, their trial, and they repented. May Day, now everyone laughs. Repentance, come on, come on. No, my God, what have we done? What have we done? How stupid we were, and the poor man. And so the attorney said to them, uh, well, write him a letter and offer him something. So they wrote a letter saying, we are willing to take care of you for 25 years. We make a contract. The man was 36 years old, not married. He will never get married in his wheelchair. will be living from social assistance for the rest of his life. Awful. So they offered him to take care of him for 25 years. No answer. The attorney said, write him again. They wrote him a second time. Then the men had been thinking, had been discussing it with other people. And some friends had said to the captain, why don't you accept it? Accept it. They will do their utmost, you know, to make your life bearable. So he wrote back, okay, I accept. That was brought before court. I said, well, do that. This is now... A wonderful case as it should be, you know. This is divine justice. Now do it. No, said the public prosecutor. All these boys attacking cab drivers have to learn a lesson. So they go eight years to prison, and after that they can take care of the... No, they've never taken care of the... Because then they have the feeling, we have already suffered ourselves eight years in prison, why should we take care of the cab driver? This case goes to the heart of what Herman Bianchi thinks is wrong with contemporary criminal justice. It insists on punishment even where a settlement satisfactory to the parties is available. How much goodwill is wasted in this way? How many enemies created unnecessarily is impossible to know. The only way to find out, in Bianchi's view, would be to create a parallel system of justice based on the old principles of sanctuary and restitution. Hostile procedures would then have to be invoked only if this first system failed. How such a way of doing things might work will be Herman Bianchi's theme in the final program of this series. I have never been so stupid to think that we will ever be able to get rid entirely of a punitive system of criminal law. But I hoped that we could develop another system of restitution and restoration and redress next to the present system, the punitive system. So we should offer all criminals, without any exception, a possibility to redress the harm they've done. You should offer that seven times or ten times, many times. If they continue to refuse, if they stand in the evil they've done, 
Then we throw them out. Then we use a prison. Because we can no longer send them into the forest. <laughs> we can no longer send them into the desert. Well, we have a desert. That's a prison. And then I think that only one-tenth, uh, perhaps, then Holland would no longer have 12,000 people in prison, but perhaps thousands. And we need a prison where there are very dangerous people. I don't want to be killed on the street, would you? No, nobody would. So there are very dangerous people. We have the duty to protect ourselves against violence. And then there is no solution. But uh, So I just go back to old Hebrew law, to old church law, to old Indian law. If people commit harm, commit an evil deed, give them the opportunity to redress what they've done. And that is civilized law. On Ideas Tonight, you've listened to part two of Justice as Sanctuary, a profile of Dutch criminologist Herman Bianchi. David Cayley will be back next week at this time with the third and final program in the series. The technician for tonight's program was Dave Field. Associate producers Kate Pemberton and Liz Nage. Producer Richard Handler. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht. I'm Paul Kennedy. A printed transcript of tonight's program is available for $8, or you can order the whole three-hour series for $19. Prices include taxes and shipping. Just write to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Next up on CBC Radio is the Hourly News, followed by the Arts Today and Between the Covers. <laughs>